I'd like you to turn to uh, the book of First Timothy as we come to God's words uh, this morning. I've been preaching through First Timothy for the last uh, month or so at uh, Emmanuel and preached this on New Year's Eve. We'll consider it together this morning, First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and then, Lord willing, consider the rest of the chapter this afternoon. First Timothy 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Thus far, the reading of God's words. Congregation, I remember a few years ago, uh, shortly before uh, being ordained and installed into gospel ministry, reading in a book that it's wise in the first few years of your preaching ministry to uh, give some attention to the pastoral epistles, that is, the books of First and Second Timothy and uh, Titus, as these books have much to teach us, not only about the work of ordained office bearers, uh, but also about life in the church in general. And that is uh, certainly the case with this book, First Timothy, which is among those pastoral epistles, where Paul tells us in uh, chapter 3 the very reason why he writes this book. He says in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I am writing these things to you. That's a, a, this is a summary of the whole book. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how to behave yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress 
of the truth. It is the pillar and foundation of the very gospel that's been committed to them. So Paul is saying the purpose of this book is to teach the proper ordering and conduct of the church, which has been entrusted with the gospel. We might say that this book is a manual in ecclesiology, that is the study of the church, or, or we could say it's a kind of like a book of church order, providing the essentials both to pastor and to flock as to how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. It's not a, a bad thing to consider. The time where the church, uh, broadly speaking, has experienced more conflict than any time in recent history. There's, of course, the political upheaval and division in uh, the states over race matters and issues of social justice that that have um, divided the church. There is division throughout the church all over the world over issues related to sexuality. There's, of course, a, a global pandemic that has caused tensions in the church over issues related to church and state, issues related to personal freedom, issues of whether or not to support a protest, issues of disagreement about the church's response to lockdowns, voices even on the internet calling any church who does not respond in exactly the way that they have faithless. And then you have members in churches reposting these things, leaving the church divided. Members leaving. Friends becoming foes. Churches that once got along, now at odds. Well, this this is the state of the church throughout the world, and this is the state of the church throughout Canada. These questions are not going away. And so in a time where there is disagreement, in a time where continued disagreement is inevitable, a book like this about how to conduct ourselves in the household of God is most welcome. And again, if you look at verse 15 of chapter 3, we see why. Because after speaking about how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, Paul says in verse 16, great is the mystery of of godliness. Paul is saying conduct in the church is tied to what he calls the mystery of godliness. Remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, who uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us is the pastor in Ephesus. That's the same church to whom Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. And this same theme of mystery comes up several times throughout Ephesians, where the mystery of God is revealed in the coming together and ordering of different pairs or different relationships. You have the mystery of God revealed in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in heaven and earth, uh, chapters 2 and 3, in Jew and Gentile coming together, and then chapter 5, husband and wife, and the mystery of marriage. In each case, these different relationships are joined and ordered under the headship of Christ, each revealing a different aspect of Christ's work, a different aspect of the mystery of the gospel. And so Kent Hughes, a retired pastor from Wheaton, Illinois, uh, writes, 
understanding from Ephesians something of the dynamic union and ordering that comes from the mystery of Christ, the purpose of 1 Timothy, which is about church conduct, takes on added importance. Because the practical ordering of the church has everything to do with revealing the mystery of Christ to the world. The details of proper church life are part of manifesting the mystery of the gospel to the world. And so we need to listen closely to this book as we read it, as we consider this morning and this afternoon, the first chapter of it, if we would learn how to properly display and adorn this glorious gospel. The first part of doing that we find in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, where in verse 11, Paul speaks of the gospel, of the glory of our blessed God, which was committed to our trust or to his trust. And what that means is that the charge we just read at the beginning of this passage to silence those who would fixate on endless speculation and to rebuke those who do not use the law lawfully, that charge is ultimately about the glorious gospel of God. When we're dealing with matters in the church, it is always about the gospel. And so we consider this morning the charge that Paul gives to silence the speculation and idle talk of those members of the church in Ephesus because it does not promote godly edification and because it does not promote the glorious gospel of God. Uh, Those are the two reasons Paul gives young Timothy to silence this idle talk because it does not promote godly edification in love and it does not promote the glorious gospel of God. First, the teaching of these men in Ephesus does not promote godly edification. The myths or vain discussion that Paul speaks of in verse 4 and then again in verse 6 are the, the sorts of fanciful interpretations of the Bible to which some in the Ephesian church wanted to bind the consciences of others. We don't know precisely what these uh, consisted of. Apparently, some of it had to do with Old Testament genealogies and their uh, preoccupation with interpretive minutia that couldn't otherwise be proved right or wrong. Um, Calvin says of these myths or uh, fables, as some translations have it in verse 4, and says that they referred not only to contrived falsehoods, but also to trifles or fooleries that had no solidity. Calvin says it's possible for something not to be false and yet be a fable. Disputes about genealogies are considered fables or myths, not because everything that these members might have said was false, but because it was useless and unprofitable. The word endless in verse 4 does not mean infinite, as in without end, but it means without a goal or a point, a telos. They are irrelevant. They are fruitless. Their end, their telos, their goal is fruitless disputes rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Which leads, as it says in the New King James, to godly edification. Paul speaks of uh, speculation in verse 4. These men are speculators. John Stott says, treating the law as happy hunting ground for their conjectures. The sort of people who love to talk about theology, 
but are not so interested in applying it. Uh, The sort of people who every conversation you have with them are are trying to uh, crack the code of to whom the number 666 refers or what the mark of the beast is. Who fixate on fruitless speculation that becomes for them the central item of their focus. Cannot have a conversation without being told how COVID vaccines are are part of, of some fulfillment of end times prophecy kind of people who allow their fixation on these things to become their central focus so that the gospel, while not being displaced, or while not being denied, becomes displaced from the center. Something else becomes their focus. These kinds of hobby horses abound. People whose view on eschatology or whose disdain for a certain kind of Christian counseling, or whose obsession with a certain Bible translation becomes their central focus and their litmus test for orthodoxy, whose view on something like divorce and remarriage becomes their preoccupation. And of a church where a family came from a certain a church that uh, didn't believe divorce and remarriage were permissible under any circumstance, and so this family made it their mission to correct the church on this issue. They were then told to stop, which they did, only until they had regained credibility and then began quietly hosting all the divorcees within the church to educate them on their position. You know, people who make it their mission to uh, hand out little pamphlets in church on how you must vote or how you must dress or fill in the blank. And this becomes their all-consuming passion, the thing that they will go to the mat for, the hill that they are willing to die on. But in each case, whether they're right or wrong on the issue, it doesn't tend to be a topic that promotes godly edification and love. You see in verse 5 how Paul says that the aim of his charge is love. That the goal of Christian teaching and mutual discussion is the fostering of Christian love among God's people. Ephesians 4, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for the building up of others so that it may benefit those who hear. Whereas the myths and endless genealogies of these Ephesians promote speculation, as it says in verse 4, controversies. Beloved, the reason why these novel interpretations of scriptural minutia or peripheral issues that become central in a person or a church's mind, the reason why these promote disputes and controversy is because they naturally spawn an elitist attitude. Where those who get it think that everyone else is simple, unspiritual, sinful, or faithless. But by getting back to sound doctrine, that which Paul speaks of in verse 3 and verse 10, instead of elitism and division being fostered where you will not interact with those you disagree with, and those you do agree with, all you talk about is how those other people are wrong. Instead of that, Paul says an unwavering focus on what ultimately matters produces love. And that love is described in verse 5 as from a pure heart from a good conscience and a sincere faith, by getting back to sound doctrine, that which accords with the gospel, verse 11, Christian love is restored to God's people. A Christian love from a pure heart that is 
an undivided heart, a Christian love from a pure conscience, meaning an inner awareness of the goodness of your words and actions, not only for yourself, but also for the body, and Christian love from a sincere faith, meaning without hypocrisy, not acting in a way that is contrary to what you profess. This is the sort of love that is fostered by silencing fruitless speculation, endless controversy and dispute, and focusing on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not to say that discussion cannot happen on secondary issues that matter, but it is to say that there needs to be a realization that there are some issues good men, even good men who sit across from each other in the pew, may disagree on. Issues our own confessions allow for variance on, or at least do not demand uniformity. Things like the precise nature of Sabbath observance or the exact instruments that may be used in worship, the question of uh, who to vote for or uh, whether to get a vaccine. One of the beautiful things about being a confessional church is that the creeds and confessions tether us to what matters most, and they place limits on what we may or may not bind another's conscience to. They tether us to what the Westminster Confession calls not only good, but necessary consequences from Scripture, those things that bind us to the good deposit that's been entrusted to the church and keep us from getting lost in the weeds or straying from the center, as Paul says in verse 6. That's why he keeps talking about the, the, the deposit that has been entrusted to him. You see it in 1 Timothy uh, 1.4. It speaks of his stewardship. Verse 11, that which has been committed to his trust. He'll, he'll end the book in chapter 6, verse 20, telling Timothy to guard what has been committed to his trust. You see this same central theme in 2 Timothy and in Titus. There is a jealous concern throughout the pastoral epistles to guard the primacy of the good deposit that has been entrusted to the church. And in our context, that looks like focusing on the good and necessary consequences from Scripture that are contained in our confessions and not to focus on interpretive minutia, end-time speculation, practical, political, or theological hobby horses. C.J. Williams of the uh, Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh says, the things on which we focus must be demonstrably certain and not reasonably deniable. Says this speaking of this good and necessary consequence clause in the Westminster Confession. He says, this qualification is a much needed safeguard against creative inferences based on meager biblical evidence. Biblical evidence or biblical inferences that are merely possible or conceivable are not the stuff on which to build the doctrine and practice of the church. Biblical inferences that are merely possible or conceivable are not the stuff on which to build the doctrine and practice of the church. You see what he's saying? He's saying the church is built on that which is sure. This passage gives us two tests to apply to all Christian teaching. The test of faith, does does what I'm hearing uh, come from the word of God in clear agreement with apostolic doctrine, or is it the product of human imagination? And the test of love, does it promote unity in the body of Christ, or is it irresponsibly divisive? Does it promote the glory of God and the good of the church? The doctrine of the teachers in Ephesus did neither, but rather promoted 
speculation and controversy. May that not be the case in Vineland, but may all of the teaching that goes forth from this pulpit and all of the, the conversation that proceeds from it instead promote the glorious gospel of our blessed gods. So Paul gets at in verses 8 through 11, where he shows that their misuse of the law, law there is simply shorthand for the scripture, he shows that their misuse of scripture is not lawful. They're using the word of God, verse 7, to force members of the church into obscure interpretations, even ethical obligations like abstaining from marriage or abstaining from certain foods we see in 4 verse 3. And so Paul says, stop using the law like that. And then he anticipates their objection, where they might protest, what, are you trying to do away with the law, Paul? Are you not pro-scripture, pro-law? Are you, are you anti-law, Paul? And he says, no, the law is good, but you have to use it lawfully. And then he goes on to show what the lawful use of the law looks like in verses 9 and 10, that it is not made for the just or the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. In other words, the law is used lawfully when applied to the lawless. The purpose of the word is not simply to tickle and intrigue. The purpose of the word is not to create special tiers of of the super spiritual and those who really get it and really have it figured out. But the purpose of the word is to challenge and humble and bring us low. They're not using it in a way that prepares for and focuses on the gospel, but they are misunderstanding its central use, its central purpose. Kent Hughes says, Paul's point is relentlessly clear. If you are going to proclaim the law in this dark and sinful world, then you must do it as an entrance to the gospel. And so Paul lists all these different sins in verses 9 and 10 that ultimately are a summary of the Ten Commandments. If you look at the middle of uh, verse 9, it speaks of those who strike their fathers and mothers. This is a reference back to Exodus 21.15 about the fifth commandment, about honoring your parents. Right after that, Paul moves on to the sixth commandment where he speaks of murderers. He talks about the seventh commandment as he mentions sexual immorality and homosexuality. Eighth commandment where he speaks of enslavers. Uh, The King James said, man-stealers, those who steal other people and try to make them their own property. Get to the ninth commandment, he speaks of liars and perjurers in verse 10. Paul is is taking the second table of the law, commandment by commandment, 5 through 9. And and some have pointed out uh, that the language in the early part of verse 9 may actually have the first table of the law in mind. A late OPC minister and uh, New Testament scholar, George Knight, moving backwards from the middle of verse 9 to the beginning, suggests that the word profane may refer to those who profane the Sabbath. The word unholy to those who do not hallow God's name but take it in vain. The word sinner for idolaters who break the second commandment and ungodly or, or godless for those who abandon the one true God in violation of the first commandment. That's true, that would leave the words lawless and insubordinate at the beginning of verse 9 as a sort of introduction with the rest of the list taking us commandment by commandment, 1 through 9. 
Perhaps the 10th commandment even being covered in that closing line at the end of verse 10, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. After all, we confess in Lord's Day 44 that the 10th commandment includes anything contrary to any one of God's commands. And so it would seem that something of a comprehensive summary of the law is given in verses 9 and 10 of our passage. But not simply so that we can speculate about which word refers to which commandments. But the purpose of the law, as we are reminded in Lord's Day 44, is to make us know more and more our sinful nature and to more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. The purpose of the law is to convict of sin. The purpose of the law is to show us our need of Christ. So what Paul says in verse 9, that the law is not for the just, it's not for the righteous, but it's for sinners. And to make it instead a means of battering the consciences of God's people by telling them that they may or may not marry or may or may not eat, and eat certain foods as those in Ephesus do in 4 verse 3 or, or to make it a mere hunting ground for their fanciful and speculative exegesis which does not confirm them in but draws them away from the gospel is to misuse the law. The law is used lawfully when applied to the lawless. The law is used lawfully when it highlights the glorious gospel of the blessed God that is committed to Paul's trust in verse 11. The glorious gospel of the blessed God that allows even a persecutor and blasphemer like him in verse 13 to obtain mercy. Even he, the foremost sinner, verse 15, to be saved. For Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That's where Paul is heading in the next section of chapter 1. We'll see that this afternoon. And he's saying that gospel ought to be central to the church's proclamation, the gospel of Christ's active obedience, perfectly fulfilling the law on your behalf and mine, and then passively submitting to the wrath of the Father poured out on him at the cross so that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God justified as, as we are, are united with Christ in his resurrection where we see that the Father is pleased with his one sacrifice on the cross once for all. And having a perfect high priest who has ascended in heaven pleading our cause at the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel that is to be central to the church's proclamation. As Jesus says in Luke 24 and John 5, both from the Old Testament and the New, and, and the, the, the Law of Moses, the writings and the Psalms, all of it concerns him. But that to which these men in Ephesus are fixating on and becoming preoccupied with, he says in verse 10, is contrary to it. To the glorious gospel of the blessed God that was committed to his trust. And so Paul charges Timothy to silence the idle talk of those who would so stray because it does not promote the gospel and does not promote godly edification in Christian love. And as he charges Timothy to silence them, he also promises that God will give young Timothy everything that he needs. We see that in verses 1 and 2 where uh, Paul gives a rather unique greeting in comparison to his other epistles. 
Uh, here, he not only reminds young Timothy that, uh, that Paul's apostolic position is due to divine command, as we see in verse 1, but also that the charge he now gives him as Christ's ambassador comes with a promise. A promise of grace, mercy, and peace. He's saying the same God who charges you to silence these men who have strayed from keeping the gospel at the center. The same God who gives you this charge will also give you the grace, mercy, and peace that are needed. It's interesting, every other Pauline greeting is simply grace and peace, but in First and Second Timothy, he adds mercy. To encourage young Timothy in the difficult task ahead of him as church conflict and silencing those who had gained themselves an audience is no one's favorite task. Especially a young pastor like Timothy. And so the same one who charges him with this task, Christ, by whose command Paul writes in verse 1, promises to give him the grace and mercy that are needed. Which is ultimately the same promise that he gives to his people in the midst of church conflict in 2022, in the midst of relational conflict or sharp disagreements. As he calls the church to refocus on the gospel, he promises to provide us with all that we need in doing so. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the message of Christ to Timothy this morning. That's the message of Christ to his church in 2022. That as we seek to place our primary focus on the one thing that matters most for the glory of Jesus and for the good and edification of the church in love, he will give us the grace and mercy that we need. So that, Lord willing, as we devote ourselves to this, the church will know less and less of the speculation, idle talk, and disputes that this passage speaks of, but more and more of the mystery of Christ and his glorious gospel. And that will be more and more adorned by a people who conduct themselves in the household of God in a way that is shaped by that gospel. May that be our prayer that the Lord would do that at adoration. May that be our prayer for the church in every place, by schism rent asunder, by heresy distress, that the Lord would allow the same gospel that is proclaimed from Christian pulpits in every place to shape the people of God, to adorn that gospel mystery in love. Let's pray that the Lord would do that. Our Father in heaven, we... Having heard your word this morning, are humbled and brought low for the ways that we fail to do, the very things that you call us to. Lord, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to your church and for bearing patiently with your church in the midst of contentious disputes, in the midst of making secondary things primary that in your patience you call us back to the center when we stray. Lord, we pray that you would give your church the grace and mercy that are needed as members of the household of God to focus on this glorious gospel that you've committed to our trust, and in so doing, to have love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith to be worked in us. Lord, we know it's only your gospel that can do this as you minister it to us in word and sacrament. 
as we confer on it together. And so we pray that you would help your saints here at Adoration and their pastor to devote themselves to that for Christ's sake, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed gods. Lord, we pray that for your church in every place, divided, frustrated by schism, rent asunder, by heresy, distress. Lord, give your church grace to keep at the center the glorious gospel of our blessed God and to bring that glorious gospel to the ends of the earth for the glory of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.